So guess who's coming for dinner? Now, that question might cause one of two reactions in your life. You might get really excited when you hear that question, excited about you know, who it is that might be coming to dinner, or you might have some paralyzing fear when you think of who it might be that's coming over for dinner. Sometimes we're not sure. I would imagine all of us have been at a meal once or twice where we sat next to someone that we just loved talking to. I mean, they were just fantastic and pleasant and just enjoyable. And we've probably all had another time where we were at a luncheon or, or a dinner where we sat next to a person and, and we thoroughly hoped that dessert would get there really fast so we could move on with our day because it was someone we didn't want to be next to. I was reading about a young woman who was at a family dinner party. And she was sitting next to her uncle. And her uncle said, yeah, I know a husband that was talking to his wife. And he said to his wife, honey, you know, you've always been there by my side, right there for all the hard things in life. You were with me through so many different sicknesses. You were with me through bankruptcy. You were with me when, when my hair started falling out. You were with me when I had my heart attack. You were with me when the house burned down. You were with me when I got struck by lightning. Honey, you've just always been right there next to me. And sweetie, I'm sorry, but I'm starting to think you're bad luck. So, But what if whoever it is that you're sitting next to at a luncheon or a dinner party is, is not somebody who would create awkward conversation and not somebody who would tell you funny stories? What if the person that was your dinner guest, the person next to you, what if they rattled and stirred your soul? What if they stirred your soul in such a way that you start thinking about who you really are and what you're really doing with your life. Someone that would speak to you in such a way that you would feel that they know you better than anyone else. Someone that would give you confidence that there is hope for you today and tomorrow and the next day and for all your days and even after your days. That'd be some kind of dinner guest, right? That'd be somebody to sit next to. Well, there is somebody just like that, and their desire is to give you just that kind of rich hope. So who is it? Listen to Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. So Jesus has been invited to this luncheon, it's an after church luncheon, by one of the church leaders, maybe he was a pastor or elder, maybe he was one of the deacons or a Sunday school teachers, but one of the church leaders invited Jesus over for lunch after church. This was a common thing. It happened often. See, on, on church days, they didn't cook a big meal, and they didn't go down to the hummus buffet over on the bypass. No, they went back home. And they had already prepared something in the crock pot the day before, so they weren't working on this day. The, the food was already ready. They invite somebody to come over and eat. But this is not a friendly after-church lunch. Now, how do we know that? Well, Luke says that they were watching him closely. The language that he uses has the meaning of, of sinister espionage. They, they were spying on him. And so this luncheon was, was some kind of religious espionage to try to gain some intel on Jesus. Or maybe it was a spy game to try to trap Jesus and get him in trouble. And how would we know beyond just the language that Luke uses? Well, we know that this is not a real friendly luncheon because Jesus was invited. 
See, the Pharisees were not big on trying to be friends with Jesus. They, they didn't care for Jesus. Generally speaking, they hated Jesus. They did not see Jesus as a friend of the church. They saw Jesus as a threat to the church. So just the fact that Jesus was invited is a little strange, but Jesus wasn't the only interesting lunch guest. Listen to verse 2. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Dropsy is a severe, abnormal increase in fluids in the, the tissues and the cavities of the body caused by some type of disease. It gives the appearance of extreme bloating just throughout the body. So this man would not have been pleasant to look at. So it wouldn't be natural that a kind of gross-looking guy would be invited to a fancy lunch, so to speak, after church. But it wasn't just his looks. You see, the Pharisees, they had a long list of religious rules, and some of their rules included things about sickness. And a lot of their ideas on sickness was it was connected to sin. If you were sick, you were a sinner. If you had disease, there was disobedience in your life. And so it wasn't just his looks, but it was also just the disease itself that, that would cause them to not have anything to do with him. They, they would not have invited him. And so you have Jesus who's at this lunch, and, and he's actually a threat to them from a rebellious standpoint and from a religious standpoint. And then you have this diseased man, and he's a threat to them from a physical standpoint and also for a religious standpoint. And yet, both of them were invited to lunch at the house of this Pharisee. So it seems just by context that, that there's a, a trap being set for Jesus and that this diseased man is the bait. So what kind of trap and what kind of bait are we talking about? Well, we're getting ready to find out. Listen to verse 3. And Jesus answered. Now, this is kind of funny if we just stop right there. What did he answer? No one said anything. No one asked anything. And then suddenly Jesus answered. So what is he answering? Well, he's answering what they were thinking. Jesus knew their thoughts. He was reading their minds. That's some pretty good dinner party entertainment, right? Reading people's minds. But this wasn't a party game for Jesus. Now, he wasn't guessing their thoughts like Karnak the Magnificent. He wasn't using some psychic tips that he had picked up from Madame Ruth. He wasn't using Jedi mind tricks either. No, Jesus supernaturally knew what this Pharisee and, and his friends around the table were thinking because, as Charles Spurgeon has said, Jesus is the very God of very God. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he answered what they were thinking. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that would probably freak me out a little bit. You know, Some guy's reading my mind, and, and then he responds to what I'm thinking. So what were they thinking? Well, his answer to what they were thinking helps us see. Listen to verse 3. And Jesus answered, and he spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So he's exposing their trap. See, Jesus is, is realizing they've paraded this kind of gross-looking man in front of him, and they're wanting to see if Jesus will heal him on a church day. That's what they were thinking. This was their plan. This is what was going on inside of their minds. They were wondering if Jesus was going to take the bait. Is he going to go after this? See, in their mind, according to their rules, if Jesus took the bait, if he healed this man, then that would be work, that would be labor, and he would be breaking the Sabbath. 
And we know that he would be breaking the Sabbath. We know that healing was forbidden on the Sabbath because that was the first commandment that God gave the Hebrew slaves out in the desert, right? It goes like this. Thou shalt wear your best suit or your finest dress or your favorite skinny jeans or your most comfortable leggings to church on Sunday. And when you are wearing whatever clothes on Sunday that you declare that the Lord approves of, then thou shalt not show mercy to someone in physical need. That's the first commandment, right? That's the first and greatest and foremost commandment, right? Isn't that that how it reads in y'all's Bible? No? No. Well, surely it's the fourth commandment, right? I mean, it's somewhere in there, right? Now, there's something fishy about their concept of what God told Moses, their concept of the commandments. What they are thinking doesn't sound right. And so Jesus, he just poses a question to them about what they're thinking. He says, is it against the law to heal someone? On the Sabbath. Is it against the law? So how did they respond to his answer about what they were thinking? Listen to what verse 4 says. But they kept silent. They had nothing to say. Nothing to say. Why? Well, they were tongue-tied because they only had kind of one of two answers they could have given. The question was, hey, is it against the law? So they either had to say it's against the law or it's not against the law. All right, so let's just look at their two answers. If they said it's not against the law to heal someone on a church day, then they wouldn't be saving face with their religious friends, right? It looked like they were siding with Jesus, and that was a huge no-no. But if they said it was against the law, then they looked like a bunch of mean jerks, right? They didn't care about other people. They didn't have any mercy, any compassion for people who were in need. So how did they respond? (laughs) They didn't say anything. They were just silent. You know, one of the best ways for a sinful person to avoid being confronted with their sin is to act like they were never confronted with their sin. Just to ignore, just to act like nothing was said, that they were not confronted in any way, that there was no communication from God or anyone else about their sin. That is a tool that the enemy uses toward people. Just just act like nothing was said, act like nothing's going on. But some of you might say, well, minute, doesn't the Bible kind of teach us to be slow to speak? Isn't, isn't being quiet a good thing in the Bible? Isn't silence kind of a positive thing sometimes? Yeah, it is. Yes, the Bible does say be slow to speak. Don't be quick to speak. Be slow to speak. Think. Honor the Lord with what you're saying. And doesn't the Bible kind of give some principles on humility? You know, a sense of quiet humility? I mean, how often do we say, well, well, he doesn't say much or she doesn't say much very often, but, but when they do, now you should listen. Yeah, we... We would affirm what the Bible teaches on being slow to speak. We would affirm what the Bible teaches on quiet humility. But these guys are not displaying quiet humility. No, they are being humiliated. They don't have an answer to Jesus' question. And why don't they have an answer? Well, because God did not say that it was against his law to heal on the Sabbath. They had no leg to stand on. There was no answer they could give. These religious leaders, they had created a long list of rules. Those rules protected their religious reputation. But those same rules, those bylaws that they had put together, they were harmful to the church and they were harmful to other people. 
Here's one example I came across in my reading this past week. Undoubtedly, it was against the Sabbath law to tie a rope to your bucket at the well when you went for water. Okay, so on the Sabbath, if you needed some water from the well, you could not tie a rope to your bucket and send it down in the water. It's against the rules. It seems, though, that it was not against the rules to tie a knot in your wife's belt or your wife's sash. You know, it wasn't against the rules if your wife had a knot in her belt or her sash. So if you needed water on the Sabbath, what could you do? Well, you could tie your wife's belt to the bucket and then tie the rope to your wife's belt and you can dip down and get some water, you know? A little patch cord, a little something to work around those rules. See, there was always a way to work around the rule, but the, the rules were, were kind of crazy. They were noble. They were noble rules, but they were a little bit crazy. Some of those rules detailed work. What was allowed and what was not allowed. And labor and work would be consistent with what God gave. And so they kind of fine-tuned that a little bit, and they began to give details of what work really would be. And some of those details of what you couldn't do involved medically helping someone, so to speak. So if we were to put that in, in modern times, we might say that, that if a doctor were to perform surgery on the Sabbath, he'd be breaking the Sabbath rules. Or we might say that if a nurse was, was going to help a patient to the bathroom or, or give a patient a shot, that, that that nurse would be breaking the Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath rules. So there seems to be some kind of trap about the Sabbath that's being set for Jesus with this diseased man, and they're looking to see if he will take the bait and get himself caught. Now, remember, this is Jesus. <laughs> So what does Jesus do with this trap? And he knows now that this trap is being set. What does he do? He hits it head on. He jumps right in the middle of it. And don't forget, this is Jesus who already knows the Pharisees. He knows that the Pharisees hate him. He knows that the Pharisees are after him. And yet what does he do? He accepts the invitation to lunch. We might not do that. <laughs> But Jesus does. Jesus walks right into the home. He walks right into the trap, and he knows what he's doing. He's not confused. And why would he do such a thing? Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. To seek and to save. Jesus steps into this lunch. He knows exactly where he is. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows the trap that's being set, but he, he walks into it because they might be setting a trap for him, but he is pursuing them with grace. He's pursuing them with mercy. He's pursuing them with salvation if they would just have it, if they would just not push him away and reject him. Listen, friend, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that, that right now Jesus is pursuing you with his grace because you are hearing the truth of the gospel. So don't resist. Don't reject. Don't push him away. Receive him. Come to him today. Jesus confronts their trap with a question. So is it against the law to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And they responded to his question with silence. So how does he respond to their silence? Listen to verse 4. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. 
Jesus put his hands in some way on this man. Maybe he put his hands on his head. Maybe kind of put his hands on his shoulders and kind of drew him close. Maybe he just brought him in for the real thing. Just gave him a big hug. And in that moment, the man was instantly healed. There was no hocus pocus. There was no abracadabra. There was no fancy background music for the healing. There were no expensive oils, no expensive medicines. Jesus just took hold of the man and immediately he was healed. And he went on his way. What are they going to say? I mean, what are they going to say? Jesus didn't do any work. He He just hugged the guy. And the guy was healed. And there was no fanfare. It just, it just says he sent him away. The people at the luncheon who watched this miracle, I mean, this, this bloated man just immediately went from being an eyesore to being healed. They looked at this, and they didn't jump up and start high-fiving. The disciples didn't turn to one another and go, oh, no, he didn't. He, did he just do that? Jesus did not drop the mic and throw his hands up in the air and walk off. But there was no fanfare. There was, there was no big thing in a millisecond. The man who was an eyesore was completely healed. And then he, he was just gone. He was sent away. In a, in a moment, Jesus changed everything. See, the trap, it was set. And the trap, it was challenged. And then the trap was crushed. Jesus crushed their trap with a hug, with a healing first time Jesus left them silent. They didn't know what to say. Now their, their jaws are dropped. But they don't know how to, to respond to this. It's not really dropped in awe, though. It's probably more dropped in anger. See, the Pharisees, they had a way of, of kind of being like the bad guys at the end of an episode of Scooby-Doo, you know? Yeah, we would have got away with it. It weren't for this meddling kid from Nazareth, you know? We would have we done it. They always had this thing of, of anger when they saw God do something great. They couldn't handle it. They had no words for Jesus when he gave them a challenging question about the law. They had no words for Jesus when they saw him miraculously heal a man. They were silent. And what does Jesus do? How does he respond to their silence? Listen to verse 5. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? So the first question was about the law. Second question, similar. Someone has said the second challenging question is, has a kind of a unique hint of mercy in it toward these church leaders? Imagine, if you will, that, that one of these, or just the Pharisee, let's just say the Pharisee who invited him over. Let's just say his name is, is Shechaniah, all right? And so Jesus turns and he says, hey, Shach, I saw your son when I came in today. He was out playing in the courtyard. Man, cute kid. Let me ask you a question. If, if your son were to fall in, into the big well in your neighborhood, Shaq, are you telling me that you wouldn't tie a rope to your bucket and send it down to rescue your son because it was the Sabbath? Really? Shaq, what if it wasn't your son? What if it was your ox or, or your donkey? You know, your family, they depend on those animals. You need those animals to provide for your family. Are you telling me that you would look at your workers and say, you know what, just, just leave the animal till tomorrow because we're not going to get it since it's the Sabbath. Is that what you'd say to them? 
You'd let your son or an ox or a donkey drown just to keep your religious rule? Come on, Jack, really? Is that what you'd do? And then he turns to him and says, and yet you bring this man into your home today. This man that's drowning physiologically in the fluids of his own body from this disease. And you say that it's wrong to heal him? And you can just see Jesus looking at him and saying, look, I know you're trying really hard to be religious, but you know what? You're not a robot. You were created with a heart and a mind and a soul, and you know what is good and right and holy in this moment. And what was good and right and holy in that moment with that man? Mercy. Mercy was was good and right and holy in that moment. You see, these, these religious men, they were trying so hard to keep up with and obey and abide their rules that they created for serving God that they forgot the very character and nature of the God that they proclaim to be serving. This is what God said about himself to Moses. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's our rule. That's our bylaw. That is our example. That is what we should be following. What is the Sabbath day? It's a day of mercy. It's a mercy day. God looked on the the Hebrew slaves and, and he gave them something after their freedom, something that they had never had before. He gave them a day off. He gave them a vacation He gave them a a day to not work, to not labor, a day to rest, something they had never experienced before. And it wasn't just a a day to take a nap and, and watch the race and read the paper. No, it was a day to rest in God. It was a day to enjoy Him, to to worship Him, to delight in the one who delighted to bless them and delighted to show them mercy. That's who God is. See, Jesus is taking these very religious men and he's pulling them back to Moses. He's saying, you guys are big on the law. Let's go all the way back and let's see that the lawgiver is one who is slow to anger. That the lawgiver is the one who is compassionate. And he's pressing these men to look at the God that they claim to serve and to look into their own hearts and their own minds and their own attitudes and their own actions and to start asking themselves some questions. Like, is our dress code more important than the mercy of God? Are our music styles more important than the mercy of God? Is our work and our our labor and our Sabbath codes or those codes more important than the mercy of God? Is our denomination more important than the mercy of God? Are our bylaws more important than the mercy of God? Are our rules for church days more important than the mercy of God? See, the mercy of God is the greatest of all mercies. And even in the home of some men trying to trap the Son of God, still the mercy of God is seen. In light of God's character, in light of God's 
law that he actually gave, the merciful nature of his true law. The only question that's coming out of this lunch after church is this. Who's really keeping the Sabbath correctly? The Pharisees or Jesus? Lig Duncan says this, For all the noise they make about caring about the Sabbath, they show that their heart is not right. Let me just say real quickly that this is not a perfect church. It will never be a perfect church because there is no such thing as a perfect church. But let me just take a moment just to say thank you to you. Because just in the last two weeks, you've really outdone yourselves with acts of mercy. It's been overwhelming. And and for me, it's just been fun just to watch all the acts of mercy that you've shown. Acts of mercy at the nursing home and the assisted living center. Acts of mercy at the hospital. Acts of mercy at the funeral home. Acts of mercy at the homes of, of moms who just had new babies. Acts of mercy at homes where people have been sick. Acts of mercy toward homes in Guatemala for kids who have no home. You have done so much in the last two weeks. So many of you to show so much mercy. So let me just say thank you. And let me also encourage you, do not grow weary in showing mercy. Because our God has not grown weary in showing mercy to us. So keep up the good work. See, these church folks were being confronted by Jesus because they had a lack of mercy. And so Jesus throws a challenging question to him. He says, why is it that you're so quick to show mercy to your family and the things that you own, but you're slow to show mercy to anyone or anything else? And how did they respond? Listen to verse 6. And they could make no reply to this. So the first time they were silent. They didn't want to say anything. They didn't want to get themselves caught. This time they can't say anything. What are they going to say? They've been exposed. They have no mercy. They are uncaring. They have no compassion. Their sin's been exposed and and they cannot put together an answer. Here's the saddest thing about this moment though. The whole story could change right here. See, that they could be healed from their lack of mercy, just like that man was healed from dropsy. See, Jesus, he, he could have taken them in. He could have pulled them in for the real thing too, and he could have hugged them, and he could have healed them, but they would have nothing to do with it. Their defensive nature, their arrogance, their pride made them deaf and dead to the gospel. You know what's so great about the gospel? You know what's so great about the good news of the gospel? What's great about the good news of the gospel is it points us to the mercy of Jesus Christ. And you know why the mercy of Jesus Christ is so great and so wonderful and so awesome? It's because the mercy of Jesus Christ reminds a believer that the wrath of God will not come to us at the end. That's mercy. It's mercy. 
I love how Charles Wesley put that into words. I might try to throw the tune in with this too. Long my imprisoned spirit lay Fast bound in sin and nature's night Thine eye diffused a quickening ray I woke the dungeon flamed with light My chains fell off, my heart was free I rose, went forth, and followed thee Amazing love, how can this be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. That this God should die for you. How can that be? And yet it is. And yet it is. The same Jesus who walked into the trap of the Pharisees, the same Jesus who walked into what they thought was the trap of the cross, he walked in with boldness and love and joy to rescue sinners like me and sinners like you. And so, friend, I just have this thought for you. If your chains have fallen off, if you have been set free, then make it your ambition to be mercy. Make it your ambition to show mercy at every way that you can. Make it your solid resolution this new year that you are going to be a merciful person. Why? Because you have been shown great mercy. Because the glorious God of heaven has shown you mercy. He is slow to anger. He is quick to compassion. And he is abounding in love. He is our example. Let us rise forth and let us follow.